Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Ducks Confidential Podcast. I am James Crepia, the Oregon Ducks beat reporter for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. Appreciate all of you for subscribing already. If you don't, a reminder, if you don't yet subscribe to the podcast, uh, what are you doing? Makes it easy to keep up with everything if you do, and we appreciate everybody who already does. Make sure you give us the uh, likes, reviews, etc., etc. Helps other people find it just in case they haven't yet already as uh, this season winds, the regular season winds down. Uh, here for Oregon, we'll obviously go over last weekend's game with Washington. Uh, a classic, a tremendous second half uh, for those in a objective position and without a particular vested interest in the outcome one way or the other. Uh, some incredible uh, college football theater uh, really was an outstanding game. And I realize, yes, for a overwhelmingly Ducks fan audience, uh, these are not the things that you would necessarily say at the at the forefront uh, that will be in your memory bank necessarily. But uh, having said that, a truly, uh, it was a great game. It was. It was a great game, a great second half. Uh, the game that was basically expected uh, insofar as stylistically how it played out, particularly in the second half. The first half was almost the polar opposite of what was expected. Uh, and it was just a matter of time. And sure enough, uh, you got the offensive explosion that we were expecting in that one. We'll go over that a bit. And we will chat with uh, former Oregon safety, Verone McKinley III, now with the Miami Dolphins. Uh, he was kind enough to join us here this week. Fit us in amid a bye week for him uh, as he and uh, both former collegiate teammate and still current uh, now NFL teammate, Javon Holland, formerly of the Ducks as well. They will be uh, coming back to Eugene for the Utah game on Saturday. So that's why uh, we were able to fit them, fit him in and uh, chat a little bit about how things are getting going for him in the NFL and uh, how this past week went for Oregon and how the week ahead will be going for Oregon. And his, like I say, he'll be making his return to Eugene uh, with, with Javon Holland uh, to take in the Utah game on Saturday. But to take a look back at, like I say, really what it was, a classic football game, a outstanding, uh, again, just objectively speaking, just an outstanding game to, to watch and attend. Great setting, great theater. Not much to say in the first half other than it was really a, if you had to draw up how the first half could have gone more advantageously for Washington, You'd be you'd be pretty hard pressed. Uh, that was, in terms of how you want to shorten a game, 
how you want to kind of set the tone and agenda. Washington did that early, obviously. Uh, an opening drive that took quite a bit of time. Uh, Oregon goes down and has to settle for the field goal, in part because of an early penalty. All right. I mean, it's not... Obviously, it's not what the Ducks want, but you know that those are things that, unfortunately, uh, from the perspective of this offense, that's happened at times this season, whether it be an eligible man downfield or whatever the pace, you know, whatever the case may be on some of the penalties. Some of those things you have to live with. You just do. That's just reality. Uh, so in this case, it's a hands to the face penalty. All right, well, you know, it, it, again, it happens. Um at 7-3 and 10 minutes into the game, that's quite a lot, quite honestly, it's really not all that unusual by way of pace and what and whatnot of the game. But for Washington to take the drive into the second quarter, uh, obviously uh, tack on a field goal, and for just to be a kind of, like I say, kind of a monotonous sort of a first half by way of pace. Oregon turns it over with the bobbled snap near the goal line. Again, for those who want to rip every aspect of aggression or what do you want to call it, gimmicks or what, or being too cute or whatever, listen, you can't have it both ways. You can't. I, I said it after the game. I'll say it again now. You can't absolutely laud and applaud all the things that you loved about Oregon's offense, which is still one of the best offenses in the country. You can't absolutely love everything about it. And then the minute and the instant that some of the things that you love most don't work out and come up sevens all the time, say, oh, what are they doing? It doesn't work like that. You can't love all the aggressiveness and the openness and... As, hey, no team wants penalties, but fact is, when you run a lot of RPO-based stuff in the offense, you're going to have man downfield penalties. I mean, some of that is just the the risk out, you know, the grossly uh, the the reward of the the high end so grossly outweighs the risk that you just got to take it. And yeah, you you can drill it and practice it to the nth degree, but ultimately, sometimes it's just going to be some man downfield penalties. They're just this, okay. Well, you can't love all things about the 14J, 14 Josh package when Josh Connolly Jr. goes out there. And whether it had been the drive where they just absolutely plotted along and dominated time of possession earlier in the season and set the tone before half, whether it be the touchdown throw to Connerly at Colorado, whether it be all the various forms of the, the run play out of it with Maliki Matavel against Cal. You can't love all the different twists and turns and variations and wrinkles that Kenny Dillingham throws in it. And then the instant that they go with a part swinging gate initial formation, and then, oh, but there's a botch snap. One, automatically tying the two together is probably disingenuous. And I say probably in that everybody's just going to rush through. Well, no, it wasn't the swinging gate. It was the fact that everybody was still moving and the time was ticking. The time's always ticking. Yeah, but there was only three or two or one second on the play clock. If the amount of time on the play clock impacts whether or not a center and quarterback can complete a 
basic snap exchange, you got bigger problems. I mean, I'm sorry. It's like the most fundamental thing in football, in offensive football, if, you, if you're operating under center, if you're operating under center. You want under center snaps? You got one? I, I heard under center snaps at the goal line are, are foolproof. Turns out, guess what? Even that, there's a degree of risk. And guess what? They didn't lose the game over either. Again, happens. And by the way, did it come back to haunt Oregon in that moment? Not just in the game, but in the moment? Washington's ensuing possession ended in a punt. So, grand scheme of things, the game's tied at 10, all square, and there's four minutes to half. Now, once again to the aggression point. Everybody who absolutely loved and celebrated and cheered and again, I must have—I must be totally misremembering how fifty-plus thousand people, almost sixty thousand people, reacted after the onside kick against UCLA. I, I must—I again, I could be just—I must be totally uh, forgetting already. Oh well, this was reckless. This was crazy. This th- th- didn't make any sense. Sure, it did. It's a tie game. It's a tie game. Four minutes to the half. Oregon's getting the ball to start the second half. Strategically speaking, why wouldn't you go for an onside kick there if you'd been practicing it? Which they had. They had practiced the exact kick they ran. Now, I'll get into why they shouldn't have. But don't tell me that it was a terrible strategy. Just on its face. As if they just pulled it out of thin air. They saw something. They practiced something. They executed it in practice. And you could, again, everybody says it always works in practice. What they were looking for, based on the look they were getting was working. They intended to run it. All right. Now, was the timing bad in terms of pure strategy? No, the timing was bad because prior to the kick, Washington picked up on something for all the reasons I just outlined, recognized "Hmm, they might be going for an onside kick here. It's kind of a lower risk situation given that the game is tied and they get the ball to start the second half. They might try and steal a possession here, a la just what they did against UCLA. They got tipped off to it. Washington flipped all of its personnel around on that ki- before the kickoff. And then when the kickoff happens, all right, what are you going to do? It ends up going right to the guy. Now, they shouldn't have, and Dan Landing admitted afterwards, that was his decision, and they shouldn't have done it based on the look they then received. The, re- the look was no longer there. Now, unfortunately, on Monday night, because I don't get to control the the order and the sequence of the questions in the press conference, it's unfortunately it's not exactly a, uh, the way I'd run things. But be that as it may, uh, haven't gotten around to asking. All right, well, a couple other things on kickoffs that we'll get to, but also, was he thinking about running the onside kick on the opening kickoff of the game, which I thought also was a possibility, because we knew that they had run it in practice during the week. And because it's a lower risk situation, and because Washington elected to get the football first. If you're going to try and steal possession, why not set the tone on the very opening kickoff? If the look was there. But be that as it may. And I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, but just going for an onside kick is crazy. Or that it's 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 somehow statistically less possible because you'd already done it this season. What? wasn't the same kick they ran earlier this season. The kick against UCLA was a bouncer that by Andrew Boyle to Andrew Boyle to fall on. 
based on what they'd seen in the middle. This was a bouncing kick to the left side to be caught on the run based on the way that Washington played on that side. I mean, they're just not even, this is not trying to get an onside kick like in the NFL where everyone knows it's coming. You're trying to catch them by surprise based on the look that you're getting from them. That has nothing to do <laughs> to try and say, oh, well, statistically, your odds on an absolutely given situation that you're getting an onside kick are infinitesimally low and that to do it on back-to-back, like that's not how you calculate the probability here. Based on looks they had actually seen earlier in the game, it was a better opportunity. But again, I digress. You can't love the aggression and love when they do the onside kick against UCLA and then hate this one. Because the situations are basically identical. And again, I say, and on the assuming possession, one, it took one of the, for Washington's purposes, especially in this rivalry, one of the great plays, not just the game on Saturday, but one that will certainly live on that side in legend and lore in the rivalry. It took one of the great plays for Jalen McMillan to peel the ball away from Christian Gonzalez in what might be teaching film in terms of the definition of tie goes to the offense and how for an offensive player to actually wrestle and wrangle a would-be interception away from the defense. And that was a spectacular play both ways. I mean, how are you going to discredit Gonzalez for intercepting a ball? That was just plain spectacular play on both sides, and somebody's got to come away with the football and it happened to be Jalen McMillan. It, it, it was what it was. All right, and Washington scores a touchdown. Excuse me, field goal. So in the grand scheme, even with your onside kick begrudgingly, uh, you know, hating it and whatnot, hey, it still only cost three points. And Oregon got a shot to tie up going into halftime anyway, and if not for either time or distance, very nearly had it. So at 13-10 at the half, grand scheme of things, not exactly that big a deal. You could wax poetic about a goal line fumble. You may not like the onside kick, but grand scheme of things, it's a three-point game. And Oregon's getting the ball to start the second half. And then the fireworks begin. Then it becomes off to the races. In not just one of the great third quarters for this rivalry or or in a college football, in my opinion, that was one of the great third quarters of offense you may see in college football, not just this season. I mean, put literally mark that one down. Like I'm not even being hyperbolic in the least. If you look at the third quarter box score, that was not only exactly what we were expecting uh, heading into the game by way of these offenses. That was a clinic, an absolute clinic in offensive football. It was ridiculous. 35 combined points, 478 combined yards. Washington went 11 of 13 passing for 199 yards. Oregon went 5 for 5 for 142 and ran for 103. They averaged, Washington had 20 plays for 11.7 yards per play. Oregon had 14 plays for 17.5 yards per play. That is some of the most absolutely outrageous 
offensive statistics you are ever going to see ever in college football. I mean, extrapolate that over the course of a game. You're talking about Oregon is nearly on pace for a thousand yards. That is a absolutely ridiculous offensive quarter. It's exactly what we were expecting. You have the number one passing attack in the country who looked every bit like the number one passing attack in the country against Oregon's defense, which is right now putting itself in the argument for the worst pass defense, if not the worst defense overall, definitely the worst pass defense, worst third down defense, worst pass rush defense in the country. And not just because Michael Penix Jr. had a heck of a night on Saturday. It's been a season-long issue, we know. But that quarter will live in this rivalry's history. That quarter should live in this season's history. Some national writers have written up about how the, the game was spectacular and whatnot, in part because of the second half. That quarter was absolutely insane by way of its offensive production. It was outrageous. As I say, there, if you put it over the course of a game and say, what would these teams be on pace for? <laughs> Oregon would have been on pace for 84 points and nearly 1,000 yards. I mean, that's just, that's beyond video game numbers. That's beyond NFL Blitz numbers. That's That's preposterous on every level imaginable. Out the shoot, the 46-yard touchdown to Dante Thornton, blows the top off. Washington comes back, and some pretty big plays, to say the least, from Penix. They get a touchdown, 20-17, back and forth, where Oregon connects on a couple, couple decent chunk plays. And then Noah Whittington breaks off a 29-yard run where Oregon had turned to Kenny Dillingham dialed up a combination of the uh, super unbalanced look. And when I say super unbalanced, for those who haven't um, picked up on all the nuances necessarily, that's where they go with uh, usually three receivers to the one side plus the tight end plus the running back. So the formation has five players to one side of the quarterback plus the line is obviously stationary and and Bo is where he is. So you have the five uh, eligible players all to one side. That's a super unbalanced when I refer to it. Plus, they also threw in the wrinkle of basically Wildcat and having Bucky Irving getting the ball directly. Um, you had the one where Irving got it, pitched it to Knicks, and then he passes it. So even off of what is already a bit of an unusual look, but has become usual for this offense. Even off of that, Dillingham finds a wrinkle to add in there with the Wildcat motion. And I don't think it is the least bit coincidental that it was being done only in the second half because after halftime, when you do it only in the second half of a game, you are preventing not just any team, but particularly in the college football, you are making it harder for in-game adjustments. If you run that before halftime, then you have a halftime meeting, go over things, quickly say, all right, how do you want to play this if this comes up again? When you only do it after the second half, it's different in college compared to even high school, let alone the NFL, in that the, the sideline technology is is basically non-existent. So you're not getting a lot of uh, you know still images, video, forget about video. You're not getting anything to really reference in that. You're just going to have to go off of boards and and 
verbal communication between coaches, coaches, the players to try and convey what you want is you want to do. Great wrinkles thrown in there by Dillingham. Again, the offense obviously comes up with a ton of production an absolutely ridiculous, frankly, uh, volume production. The Washington pass for 76 yards to Jalen Polk. The first of multiple instances in this game where, in my opinion, Oregon is asking Bennett Williams to do a ton, an absolute ton, and he is capable of a lot. And he is one of their best defenders, and he's tied for the team leading tackles. And he is one of their more capable defenders. And at times this season, he has played to the All-American level he was playing at last season. By nature, he is a box safety. He is a boundary safety when he's deep. And he is great in run support, can hit like a freight train. And in coverage in the flats, he is really good. He's really good against bigger receivers and tight ends. So a game like this week against Utah makes a lot of sense. Game against Stanford, where everybody's six foot four plus and isn't running in the four fours or four threes, makes a ton of sense. Game like Cal, where they have hardly any athletes, makes a ton of sense. Even Arizona, because of the way that they spread it out, there at one point he got lined up super outside, but it was in a, in a kind of an unusual formation. But realistically, they put Gonzo inside, they put uh, Dante Manning outside at that point. Different. Different. Here against speedy slot receivers and the number one passing offense in the country, in my opinion, I think this Oregon coaching staff on the defensive side is starting to ask too much of Bennett Williams to be playing low down in the nickel in the slot against this style of offense, against an offense with a vertical passing game like Colorado was, and he was on the bad end of the 81-yard touchdown to Tyson, and a week later on the bad end of a 76-yard touchdown, and we'll get to the last one, but on the 76-yard touchdown to Polk. And I, I'm i not faulting the player in that he gives up a couple of plays. I'm saying, is he being put in position to maximize the chance of success? And you could say, well, you only know that because the outcome is on vertical passes as opposed to if he... If, passes were in the flats he'd be in a better spot yeah but what about Washington heading into the game gave any indication that they were going to try and dink and dunk this thing this was going to be a vertical passing game kind of a game I don't think putting Bennett Williams in the nickel a lot was particularly advantageous especially given that in the first half Jamal Hill wasn't available. But okay, in the second half, once Hill's back out there, I would have put Hill down in the nickel more and put Williams back at deep safety more. And plus, you still have, obviously, Brian Addison at deep safety. And yes, Lee Stevens as well. And those guys all played. And Addison came up with a big play and also had a penalty near the goal line. And those things happen. But point is, is on the 76-yarder and then a subsequent deep shot, I think Williams was put in spots where it is really hard for him to succeed, if not bordering on the impossible, because of matchups. Because Washington's receivers aren't 6'4. These were speedier guys, and these were vertical threats. And I'm not sure that that is 
the best situation to put a really, really talented defensive back who just doesn't necessarily have the speed in those moments against the speediest of slot receivers. Against bigger guys, against tight ends, absolutely. But I'm just not sure those are the matchups that get the best out of his particular skill set. And it came up on that touchdown, and it came up on a subsequent one, and we'll get to that. Didn't take long for Oregon to respond. Obviously, immediately gets the 67-yard touchdown to Troy Franklin, where he was able to camp underneath it. And what you saw in the third quarter from Oregon's offense was not just the, obviously, two enormous pass plays from Bo Nix to to Thornton and Franklin, but in the first half where Nix missed on several several plays that he just, over the course of the season, and especially over the prior four or five weeks, just wasn't missing. And I don't just mean deep passes. He missed on a surefire touchdown to Dante Thornton. Absolutely surefire touchdown if, if he had thrown the ball. I don't, I don't know why he didn't. But in the first half, he was not comfortable, is the best way I can put it. He did not settle in until the second half. And when he did, the deep passes were there. Some checkdowns were there. I'm sure some line checks were there. And just in general, the, the caliber of play was, I mean, how, how do you knock it? Washington's drive that spans into the fourth quarter ends in the goal line interception on the tip ball by Noah Sewell, and Jeff Bossa comes away with it at the one. At that point, the game is supposed to be over. You'd say, wow, it's still only a one-score game. What are you talking about? The game's supposed to be over. Because Oregon's offense did exactly what you draw it up to do. I had that drive, the ensuing drive, with the way that offense had been playing all season, let alone over the prior couple of minutes in the third quarter. That drive of 20 plays for 91 yards in 10 and a half minutes, which obviously started again at the goal line interception, that is supposed to be the iconic drive, not just of the night, of the season, everything. Everything about it. Obviously, the game entirely shifts and flips on how that drive ends. And I'm not just saying, oh, well, because simply because it ended in a field goal. No, the plays that preceded it. For those who want to lose their minds about the high snap on second down, first off, with what Alex Forsyth has given this team and this program for his entire career, let alone this season, let alone Saturday night. One high snap that just led to an incompletion. Didn't lead to a loss of yards. Led to an incompletion. Second and five to third and five. I've seen plenty of emails and tweets at me talking about, oh, well, it was was second and long or third and long. It wasn't long. They were on schedule on second down. And frankly, they really weren't off schedule on third and five. Third and five is not long. Third and five from the ten. A high snap from a guy who is playing through clearly quite a bit of discomfort. Happens. Deal with it. Now, the third and five run by Knicks. Did Washington probably recognize that a quarterback run was coming? Yeah. 
because of the formation they came out in. It's designed to get a one-on-one with Knicks and a defender. They got it. And Alex Cook makes makes the tackle in space, and and there you have it. It's a two-yard gain. Now, the tackle itself, I'm not saying what I would call. I'm saying about the consistency of the application of the rule. Bassa was called for targeting against Cal by lowering his head and being basically parallel to the ground and having his helmet hit a receiver in the small of the back. Because, frankly, it's a really dangerous play for Bassa in that moment. It, It is. It is. And they're trying to take that hit out of the game, not because so much of what it did in that case to the offensive player, but more so because it can really severely injure the defensive player. Okay, I can appreciate philosophically where that comes in from the targeting rule. Well, then how was Alex Cook's hit on Bo Nix, which I am not saying is targeting in any way by way of head-to-head contact. It's not. It's helmet-to-thigh contact. The issue is that by technique of tackling, Cook went in parallel to the ground, head down, and head first. If that's a hit that college football and college football officials and Pac-12 officials want to take out of the game, all for it, but then apply it universally. And that's part of why you saw after the play and television pointed it out, why Nick's looks at Cook after the hit and says something is because by technique, ball carrier or not, I'm not saying it was a dirty play. I'm not saying... I haven't watched enough football from yesteryear to appreciate getting a guy down any way you can. I'm saying that in the modern era, where now the targeting rule is applied not just for head-to-head and not just for launching and not just for spearing and not just for all the different egregious methods and means, that leading with the head into a ball carrier, running back or quarterback, into the legs is... Not exactly the way you draw it up either. Now, again, in my mind, credit the defender. You're getting a guy down any way you can. On the other hand, if you're going to try and apply a rule from a technical standpoint universally, I'm kind of curious why it wasn't called. But be that as it may, it doesn't change the fact that Nix gets hurt on the play. And then, obviously, yeah, Oregon does have to take a field goal there because it's fourth and three at the eight. You're trying to make it a full possession game, and what can you do? You probably do go for it on fourth down if Knicks isn't hurt, but at that point, there is no choice to be had. If it's a two-score game, at that point, the game is over. If they convert the fourth down and still eventually score, but more time is taken off the clock, the game is over. 34 27, 354 to go, and then everything shifts. First, the second kickoff out of bounds, which not exactly how you draw it up to say the least. And something that Andrew Boyle had done a terrific job at basically since he took over the kickoff job, did not have a good night. And I'm not even counting about the onside kick because that's. It's really not on him, to be quite honest, but be that as it may. 
to kick off out of bound in the second half. That does that's suboptimal to say the least. And a couple of plays later, the 62-yard game-tying touchdown in the same play that Washington run early in the game on its opening drive on a uh, third and ten conversion, three by one to the field. First time around, they threw the out play. They threw the out route to the slot receiver McMillan. This time, McMillan basically does the same thing. And again, Bennett's over him in the slot. And this time, uh, because Oregon was running cover two with zone underneath, and they adjusted the coverage ever so slightly, it was on Williams to drop a bit further and get to the outside for Taj Davis on the vertical route. And Penix delivers an absolute dime. I know that the TV wax poetic about it. That is supposed to be an extraordinarily difficult and low probability throw for an offense to complete. It just is. supposed to be extremely difficult for an offense to complete that pass. For a right hash to left out, or left sideline in this case, because it wasn't out, it was a vertical. Same premise, because they ran left out the first time. That is not, that's basically, statistically speaking, not supposed to be completed (laughs) in the college game. On wide hash marks, the defense is supposed to be in an advantageous spot. For exactly the reason that of how Williams played ended up playing the ball, he's supposed to be in the better position by angles. And again, very nearly makes it. And that's that's the cruel nature and fate of college football and sport in general. And that you had the prior drive end the way it does, where the game could have been over. And by absolute fractions and and probably a tenth of a second no exaggeration you have a game tying 62 yard touchdown on an extremely low probability play for the offense on third and seven that completely flips a game compared to a PBU or a interception that seals the game all right all square again 307 Knicks isn't in Three straight run plays for three yards apiece. And I, I neglected to hear. I, I I was down on the field. I, I didn't, you know, so maybe I missed it in real time, I, I suppose. But I, I didn't hear anybody saying about how uh, uh, Ty Thompson lacked urgency in the handoffs the first three times. I don't know. But af- after, only on the fourth down, apparently, that was an issue, I, I guess. I think the criticism of Thompson there is, is preposterous. Now, prior to the fourth down run, that obviously flips everything. Coulda, woulda, shoulda called a timeout. Yeah. Yeah. And Dan Lanning gave that to you on Monday night. He conceded as much. Yes. They should have called timeout. And as he said, and it wasn't just for the reasons to get Bo Nix back in the game. Nix is down the sideline. Comes trotting down right before the play. Kevin Style, the lead athletic trainer, right behind him. They give the go-ahead for him to return. Clock's ticking. Play is in. There's still time to call a timeout. It wasn't absolutely one second after another. No, it was it was still 10 seconds from the time, you know, both Knicks and Style had gotten over to landing. It was 140. Ball was snapped at 130. 
there was time to call timeout. It's time to call timeout, not just for that. There was time to call timeout because, as Landing referenced, the look they got. They were in that super unbalanced look against an eight-man box. And, frankly, Washington, as Landing said, had an advantageous situation. Yes, they did. Now, if Whittington doesn't slip, and I'm not knocking him for slipping, but if he doesn't slip, I still say that Washington still has to make its first tackle in space of any player on initial contact on the night. And that Whittington may very well have been able to still bounce it outside or on the cutback and end up picking up the first down regardless. Either way, no one will ever know. It ends up negative play. Washington kicks the game winning field goal and the ensuing drive. Again, if you want to... If you want to relive and relitigate things on that final drive at that point, whether or not there should have been a late hit on the toss to Irving that goes out of bounds at the 40 or near the 50, excuse me. I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm just saying now you're just begging. Now you're looking for anything. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying at that point, all the times as a fan, when your team when your team is winning and you say, swallow the whistle, swallow the whistle, let the players decide it. Now you could say, well, a player did decide it. Hit a guy as he's going out of bounds, that's a player deciding it. He shouldn't do that. I don't disagree. I'm saying at that point, you're only begging for that because you're an Oregon fan who wants your team to get 15 more yards to have a shot at a field goal. You're not saying that because objectively. Would I have called the penalty? Yeah, I'd have called the penalty because even in real time, and I'm on the sideline, I thought, I think they're about to get 15 yards. But, all right, they didn't. And it looked like they were going to get the 15-plus yards on the pass to Franklin, and lo and behold, illegal touching. On first glance and on first look, and I'm on the other sideline by way of where I was standing, so I can't I can't tell you because I saw it with my own two eyes. I'm just looking at the game copy and the film copy the same way anybody else is. If you're standing right there and you see a receiver put a, you know, a toe out of bounds and it looks like he stepped out, then he's out. And there's nothing you can review there. Now, you can try. You, you, you can... The decision on whether or not he was pushed out or not was not reviewable. Whether or not he stepped out is. The... Official who's on that sideline who sees it, sees it that way. I don't see irrefutable evidence to the contrary. Yeah, it hurts. It stinks. It's all those things for the Ducks. Yeah, but again, even if it were complete, they get a crack at a field goal, but let's not make it like they lost the game on that. And for the Washington side the last couple of days to be going on and on about Chris Hudson allegedly faking an injury with six seconds left and, and going down and getting the clock stopped in the first place before it, when they win the game. Hey, I'll say this much, at least they're complaining when they won the game. You know, I hope that they would you know care that much about such a thing and win or loss, but okay. I, whatever it is. A, okay. It is what it is. Like I'm, I'm doesn't mean one thing to me or the other. Again, I'm sitting there watching it going, boy, that's awfully coincidental, but what can you do? Bottom line, the end-of-game sequence, when you're down three with less than a minute to play, and the only 
you you got one timeout and you have to use it when when Nick's a sack. Now you're just begging and scrambling and looking for literally anything. So at that point, that's not about oh they would have had the game if not for this or if this penalty would have been called or if this penalty wouldn't have been called or this but no. The game was decided well before Oregon's final possession. The game was decided because this defense, which has been terrible all season in pass coverage, especially on third down, was once again really bad in pass coverage, especially on third down. Washington was five of nine and had multiple uh, deeper, deeper throws and longer conversions. That's why you allow the number one passing attack in the country to put up 408 passing yards and connect on long touchdowns of 76 and 62 yards, including on third and seven. You don't have to overcomplicate it. They didn't lose the game because of a goal line fumble. They didn't lose the game because of a aggressive onside kick. They didn't lose the game because of an aggressive fourth down conversion that helped them set up a potential game-tying field goal and meant absolutely nothing before halftime anyway. Lost the game because of the larger issues. Yeah, Washington didn't allow a lot by way of tackles for loss or sacks entering the game, and no, they sure didn't on Saturday night. So you're not going to let that be the one-off instance by which you judge a defense. But fact is, is this defense has lacked in pass rush all season. And it did again on Saturday. And DJ Johnson was back, and I'm sure at less than 100%, but be that as it may. But if not for him and Brandon Dorless, this defense is not getting anything by way of penetration into the backfield on a consistent basis and opportunities to get a quarterback down. And on an early third down, they missed an opportunity to get him down. Inability to generate and capitalize on pass rush. Inability to get off the field on third down. Inability to play proper leverage and pass defense. These are the glaring Achilles heel of this defense and this team all season. And some of these issues predate this coaching staff. They do. But they none of them, not a single one. All the things that basically we could have spent the entire offseason and did spend the entire offseason asking about and talking about when it came to the Oregon defense, every single one of them still remains an issue. That's how you lose a football game. That's it. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. You don't have to come up with and reach for a lot of things. You don't have to pull out a phantom call or something. No. There were plenty of plays. Plenty of bigger instances. On the fourth down and one, if you want to go on and on and on and on and on about who was in a quarterback or timeouts, again, Landing owned up to it. He owned up to it Saturday night and then owned up to it again on Monday by way of saying, yeah, wish you would have called timeout. So if you want to have it out you know, over that, go, go for it. Absolutely. But they didn't lose the game because of his aggression. Or they should have punted. And this is where I'll end it on, on the review of the game and we'll get to the uh, interview with Verone. The notion that Oregon should have punted on fourth and one? What? They were averaging 
Washington was averaging nine yards a play. The thing that all the national pundits don't know, because why would they? And I'm not, I'm not knocking them for it. But everybody waxing poetic about, oh, Oregon, you know, Landing should have punted. Landing should have punted. What? They haven't punted all night. And on top of the fact that they hadn't punted all night, not only had they been showing a level of aggression all season on fourth down, particularly fourth down and manageable, they hadn't allowed a negative play all night. They hadn't punted all night. And right now, who is the punter on this team? They have played four of them. No one knows who the punter is right now because it's an undetermined position. They have gotten inconsistent results. So at a punting from your own 34-yard line, if they had done it with 126 to go to an offense that you have done nothing to stop all night and is averaging over nine yards of play, even if you had gotten a good kick, your coverage units are ranked 125th in the country. So if you got a spectacular kick, chances are it's going to get a long return. If you get a kick with no return, it might be because it's in the 10th row and went 10 yards. That's when you want to turn to your punter. Hey, by the way, tie game, ball to 34, 126 to go. I know you've been chilling outside here all night. And uh, and by say when I say you, it could be any of four of you. I don't know. That's the game you want to play on fourth and one? When you haven't given up and lost a single yard all night, that's what you want to do? Stop. Stop. That is the worst form of Monday morning, or in this case, Sunday morning quarterbacking imaginable. That is just plain wrong. This team and this program and this coaching staff had shown they were absolutely going to go on fourth down. There is never a question, never a doubt. You're second-guessing it because of the outcome. If you want to hate the outcome and you want to hate the process and you want to tell me about box counts and bare fronts, and I'll listen. But don't tell me they should have punted. Tell me they should have called timeout to get Knicks back in the game. Tell me any number of things. But don't tell me they should have punted. No, they shouldn't. Even if you got the most pristine of situations. Even if you got an absolute bomb of a punt to the... Washington 10-yard line. Washington was getting the ball with about a buck 20, maybe a buck 15 to go. And they were averaging nine yards a play. You don't think they were going to get in field goal range if you punted? Come on now. Be realistic. game was lost on bigger issues. And yes, I'm not looking past that major decision, but I'm saying the decision was on the timeout and on personnel and the look the offense was getting from the defense and vice versa, not because they didn't punt. And the only reason why they're in that situation at all is because of an inability to slow down Washington's offense one iota. And because, unfortunately for Oregon, on its prior possession, that absolutely could have, would have, should have ended the football game, 
I'm not even going to really lose it that much at all over a high snap. To me, that, that that's just part of football. That you got to overcome that. Seventy nine plays, and you're going to lose it over one. I mean, give me a break. Because on a third and five run, a safety drills a quarterback in the thigh, helmet first. And that knocks him out, and that makes a field goal instead of going for it potentially on fourth down instead of any number of things. So let that be the play that lives in lore. And again, I'm not calling it a dirty play. I'm not. I am curious as to why, from a Pac-12 officiating perspective, why one form of that tackling technique is targeting and the other one is not. I, I just want to understand it because it's part of my job to convey it to the masses as to how the rule is being applied. And I am at a bit of a loss when it does occur that way, regardless of my own feelings on it. Trying to explain it to somebody else, I, I have a harder time doing when that's the way it goes. But that's the play. That and a whole lot of great throws by Penix. Absolutely tremendous throws by Penix. But a pass defense that has just been woeful all season and got exploited to the nth degree. And I know I mentioned Ben Williams several times. He was not the only one by any stretch of the imagination. Oregon's pass defense got carved up. And it has been. All season. And against a legitimate vertical passing game, it had a brutal night. Now with that, we will chat with former Oregon safety now with the Miami Dolphins, Verone McKinley III, about any number of things about this game, about the start of his NFL career, about coming back to Oregon for this Utah game. We'll mention the Oregon State game and obviously the uh, play that still lives in a degree of infamy from 2020 with him and Tristan Jebbia near the goal line. And for those who want to relive that to the nth degree, but we'll chat about that and more of Verone McKinley, the third coming up again, a reminder for all of those who subscribe. Thanks already. For those who don't make sure you subscribe to the next confidential podcast. That way it comes up in your podcast feed, wherever you get your podcast. And now our conversation with Miami Dolphin safety from McKinley, the third. And we now welcome to the Ducks Confidential Podcast, a former Ducks All-American, although I'm not sure you're really ever a former All-American. I think you're just an All-American uh, at that point, formerly, obviously, of the Oregon Secondary, now with the Miami Dolphins. Uh, the general himself, Verone McKinley III, joins us. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Verone. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for, uh, for fitting us in in the middle of your uh, season. We'll, we'll start with that because that's obviously quite a bit of fun. Um, and uh, I haven't had a chance to chat with you extensively uh, amid all this. As you're, uh, you're busy, I'm busy. We all got different things going on. But um, obviously a, a nice start for you insofar as uh, you end up in a great spot in Miami. Obviously team up again with Javon. Uh, first, just take us through for fans who obviously weren't uh, following every uh, twist and turn of your uh, journey so far in the NFL, but the decision to ultimately go to Miami and, uh, yes, to, to reunite with Javon in the process and obviously find yourself in a nice situation. Um, of course, draft draft happens. Things don't go as expected. Um, get some different calls from different teams or whatever. And so when I kind of did my own research, was looking, I realized Miami's probably a good spot for me to land just 
the current situation, the type of defense they run, Javon. So, boom, I go, go through OTAs, go through camp. You know, I get, I'm on practice squad or whatever. And I mean, like I said, I was, I wasn't really knocked or anything because, you know, I put my best foot forward. And the biggest thing for me was I'm going to put everything into it and whatever happens, happens. And so just always preparing for that opportunity. And so I kind of knew, like, you know, this season would be interesting. I'm sure there'd be some games I may be up, I may be down, whatever it may be. And so, just every day, just considerably just working and working, working, working on my angles, working on my footwork every day on scout team, whatever it may be. So whenever the opportunity comes, I get in some packages. I'm ready for the moment. And, of course, I was up for – I was active for the week one game against the Patriots, but I didn't play. And then, you know, time goes by, and, you know, I'm just working still. I'm, I'm still working hard in practice, lifting weights, all of that. And so then uh, we get to the Pittsburgh game, and – I was up for that one, and I mean, I had practiced out the week, so I was kind of ready. Just you know, what's going to happen? Um, and then Brandon goes down, and they they put me in, and it's just you know, the moment's time, the moment's here, and so just building on it, things happen the way they do, just with our our team and some of the injuries we've had, and so for me, it's just been an opportunity for me to to step up, and of course, having that trust of our our head coach and DC and GMs and all of that, it's also been a a big part of it, and just making the most of my opportunity. So it's been it's been pretty cool, and I, I feel like I'm in a good spot, and I made a good decision. Take us into that uh, that call um, that you know, getting the call that you're going to be uh, called up again again to the active roster, and not just called up again, but uh, that you're going to be starting that week. Uh, what what is that conversation like? Because it's it's different. It's different when you come into the league undrafted. It's different when you're riding it back and forth, and you got to start that uh, that active clock uh, on your career and, and get that first accrued year and all those things. It's a different level of job security compared to guys uh, who are more veteran and stuff. So, just what is that first call like? Um, it was, it was interesting because I was, I started against Detroit. I played a lot, started against Detroit. And the next week we played Chicago and I, I used up all my games. So I was kind of, you know, wondering what's going to happen. And then I didn't play against Chicago. And then the next week I was in some of the game plan stuff. And so I was like, okay, it's probably, they were like, just, just be ready, be on the lookout and kind of have an idea of just how the, the way the business is of who's going to be up, who's going to be down. Things are just they move a lot and there's a lot of moving pieces to it. And you start to see that as you're in kind of in the business, you see the transactions and all of that. And so once it, it finally happened, like I went up and, and signed my new contract and everything, it was like, it was almost, it wasn't a sigh of relief for me. It was like, okay, here I am. I got, the, I'm, I've made the most of my opportunity. Now it's time to, it's like reset. Now it's like another chapter. You got to go and try to get to that next contract. You're trying to help your team get to, to Super Bowls and win games. Because the craziest thing is, like I said, in college, like it's hard to win games, but it's like really hard to win games in the NFL. Like every game, for the most part, it comes down to like who has the ball last, field goals. Like it's it's very a uh, close game. And so when I finally got that call to be on active, I was like, it's time to go. And I told my parents, like, this is just the beginning because I know it's a cutthroat business and you got to produce. And so I feel like, you know, I'm a productive player. So it's just taking steps each and every week. What is the biggest difference in your day compared to a year ago? I mean, obviously there's no class that, that, that helps. Um, but in terms of like, when we, uh, you know how different it, it is from the collegiate level to the pro level. And you were a guy who obviously took it pretty seriously at the collegiate level, but outside of not having class taking up part of the day, what is your daily schedule? How is it very indifferent? Uh, most drastically uh, at the NFL level? There's more meetings. 
um, I would say there's more meetings. Like we still practice for a good amount of time, but there's a lot more meeting time because a lot of the game is, is mental and you're trying to take care of your bodies. People get banged up a lot. So just taking care of our bodies, but that's probably the biggest thing from this time last year. And now is just the amount of time I'm at the facility because like normally after practice, I'd still be up there. till about one, two, kind of depending on my class schedule. But now, I mean, I could be there from seven o'clock all the way to, 6 30 or 5 30 like i could be there for a while and so mm-hmm. there's no break in between that like you're at the facility you're doing more meetings you're lifting treatment practice then you'll meet again and there's special teams meetings there's defensive meetings position meetings it's just a lot of different meetings and you just you're continuously doing it and these meetings are a little bit longer sometimes sometimes those meetings could be an hour and a half sometimes the meetings mm-hmm. could be two hours extra film doing stuff with javon from after practice stuff to watching film just to make sure I'm sharp. I've been doing it anyways before I was even really in the mix of playing just to make sure I'm still knowing what to do, preparing every week for when that time does come. And so that's probably the biggest difference. Of course, there's no class. So like, I don't have to worry about school or anything like that. I'm just full focused on football. So mm-hmm. what's, what's the biggest difference on the field? Is it simply the speed? Everybody talks about the speed. Obviously, everybody's bigger, stronger, faster, and that the talent pool is that much smaller. Is is the speed the biggest thing on the back end for, for you and that the windows, everything's that much tighter, the receiver's that much faster? I wouldn't. It's honestly, that's not the biggest difference. I think, of course, the league is different, and you still have to adjust to it a little bit, especially like for me in practice. I mean, I'm a rookie going against Tyreek Hill. I'm in a, a half, and Tyreek Hill's running up on me. It's a little bit different. But it's honestly the difference, especially like after the game yesterday and some of the games I've played in, the difference is the trenches mm-hmm. because there's there's truly a, a clock. Like the ball's got to come out, especially when certain blitzes are coming and just like edge rushers in this modern era of football. Edge rushers, you only have so much time. And, and normally in college, you know, there's all good players and stuff, but there's a little the, – the plays can be extended a little bit longer and those guys may not get home all the time, but – these pass rushers are serious, especially like between Bradley Chubb, Melvin Ingram, Manuel Ogba, um, Christian, Jalen. Like it's guys who are getting to the quarterback, and so that's a big difference. And then of course the running backs and just the caliber of talent each and every team has. There is no quote unquote bad team in the NFL mm-hmm. because everybody. When like people say everybody's good, it really is everybody's good. Each team is going to have an All Pro guy, a Pro Bowler, somebody who's been in this league for a long time and done some things that are very impressive and so that's that's probably the biggest thing that i've seen that's the biggest difference from from college to to the nfl no doubt it's a league that well now that's a 17 game season it's a little bit different but it's a league that basically the majority of the league ends up between six and ten and ten and six and that's why the the, used to be with 16 games now it's a little bit the the numbers a little different but basically it's the same same principle six and eleven eleven and six either way um the variability is so so finite um because of just the caliber of talent the caliber of coaching um, what was your first welcome to the NFL kind of moment? Was there a hit? Was there either meeting time? Was there a correction on film that you just went like, oh boy, they, I, I could get away with that before in college, but not here. What, what was, what was your first moment of like, yeah, this is different. This is really different. Um, it was in Tampa Bay. We mm-hmm. were, we were, it was a joint practice. Of course, like I've gone against Tariq Hill and Jalen Waddle, mm-hmm. like the receiving core that we have. But like when I got to Tampa Bay for our first joint practice, and it, and it was Tom Brady across there and just like hearing the mechanics mentally that they would go through, IDing this, IDing that, check this, check that, alert for this, all of the different mechanics. And I was like, whoa. And even Blaine Gabbert, who was their backup, was doing the same thing. Like 
ID this, ID that, check here, check here, changing routes, then getting the ball out. It was like a machine. And that was like really a big moment. And then physically, I would say, honestly, physically, probably yesterday, um, playing Cleveland, good running back, Nick Chubb, run the alley and everything. Just got to go and, and go across and finish it. But that was kind of one of those moments where it's like, welcome to the NFL, you know, good running back, good ball player, and, you know, things happen. But definitely something I can correct. But that was probably my first, especially since all the games I've played in, that was probably my first welcome to the NFL moment. And for the on the mental side, that just speaks volumes because again, you're a guy whose game IQ was was probably one of your number one traits and selling points to teams going into the league. And for you to be taken, uh, uh, I wouldn't say taken aback exactly, but to be impressed by, and, and for that to catch you, yeah, obviously we're talking about Tom Brady here. I mean, yes, uh, but everybody else uh, in in a preseason, uh, you know, practice setting that shows that shows to where if you're not at the top of your game there in game IQ and you don't prepare at that level. You're toast. You have no there, chance. There's, there's no there's no hiding. There's no hiding in the NFL. I feel like that's you can't hide somebody. That's the biggest thing that I've seen. There's they'll if you hide somebody, they will see it on film and it will get attacked the next week. Mm-hmm. How much have you been able to uh, uh, start at the NFL level? Keep up with uh, your former teammates. Obviously, we know we're playing with Javon, but uh, but I mean, from from the week to week, how much have you been keeping track of uh, just guys you've been playing with, seeing what Justin's doing, seeing when you know guys get called up, see what KT's doing? How much you've been able to to see and see some of that? Um, I, of course, I I really do stay tapped in with just things going on across the NFL. So I'm always I see Demo, I see Thomas, I see. Um, KT, I just saw who did, I just saw Panay the other mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. So you know you see all your your products and everything. So I definitely keep up with that. Um, that's been pretty pretty cool to see. Of course, I just keep up with the league. I like football a lot. So I'm still when I come home from games or practice. Let's say Monday night, Thursday night, Sunday night. I'm watching all of this. That's just that's just me. So I'm always keeping track of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, I would imagine that in season, it's still uh, uh, all the film in the world for you. Um, that's usually how it, how you, you're wired in season. Now, before the season, though, you're still in Miami, which is a little bit of a different uh, cultural situation than uh, than Eugene, I'd say. Um, live story. Where 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 is Verone putting in time in Miami? At home, because I'm, <laughs> I'm at home. A lot of the difference is like going out in Miami is just it's an expense. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I'm going to just stay at home and watch TV. Me and Javon, because Javon's staying with me right now because he's doing something. But mm. we just we just be at home. We'll watch movies, watching TV, watch a film, just goofing around at home. Because it's like there's just some stuff out there. It's like I'm good. I just rather stay at home and not, not spend all this money to, to get a table, get a section, mm-hmm. do this, do that. It's just too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, A1A is still pretty good people watching, though. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. And like, I mean, especially in the off season, like I, I definitely went just to, you know, just to see what Miami's about. I've never really yeah. been to Miami before, so. But I was like, yeah, especially once we got into camp. Ever since we've been in camp, really, I was like, I'm gonna just be at home. Yeah, I was gonna say. I figured once once we got into late July that it's been a full football mode. But I know I've, I was like, there's no way you spent part of the summer in Miami and didn't enjoy at least a little bit of it. Come on now, <laughs> that's really, right. That's a great part of great part of the world. That's that's for sure. Um, what, uh, how much you've been able to keep up with, with your alma mater here and, uh, seeing how they've been doing this season, obviously different, different coaching staff, but obviously plenty of your former teammates here. Uh, how much you've been keeping an eye each, uh, each and every week. Oh, you know, we've been keeping track every week, every mm-hmm. single week I've kept track. Um, mm-hmm. 
it's funny because guys around the facility, like everybody's always asking about, well, what's the well, who the Ducks got this week? Who the Ducks got this week? You know, just keeping track of it and just you know supporting. I, I, I love my school to the fullest, and I think Coach Landing is doing a great job. And of course, last week didn't end how we wanted it to, but mm-hmm. I'm excited to go to the game this week and and see them beat Utah. But um, I've kept track. I start. I feel like I started the Bo Nix Heisman agenda because <laughs> I was one of the first few people to say it. I said it in early October, and everybody looked at me crazy. And now it was a common thing. So. I've definitely been keeping track of them and talking to guys still on the team. So I was going to say, I know, yeah, you and you and Javon have both been uh, definitely championing that message, and uh, and and hey, both numbers obviously speak for themselves pretty loudly. Um, he had a very big weekend this past weekend against Washington, has some um, nice weekends against some good teams, some really huge weekends against some not so good secondaries as well uh, to put up some <laughs> massive massive numbers um, along the way. But uh, a definitely a big one this week with Utah. We'll get to that uh, in a moment. In general, and I'm not asking you to, to criticize your former teammates, uh, Verone, but, uh, you know, it, it was not not a great performance against Washington. Um, and, and pass defense has been a problem. Uh, and third down defense has been a problem. It was a little bit of a problem even last season when you were there, as good as you were. You had you led the country in interceptions. Uh, what have you seen that uh, may be fixable in that area? Um, it's always it's little things, really. I don't think it's anything just big it's always little things whether it's a step whether it's an angle it's always little things sometimes football most of the times in football it's a little thing that you mess up you're always almost in position to make the play but you did something little before you actually got to that moment where you're about to make the play that was an issue and so I think you know you clean the little things up refocus lock back in and just correct what you made mistakes on it don't make that mistake again and I think they'll be fine a lot of those guys I've played with and I've seen them all capable of making plenty of plays and so I think after last week, you know, some things didn't go their way. I think, you know, they'll go correct it and and learn from it. And I think that, you know, you just got to keep harping and emphasizing on certain things. Whatever you're not doing well, you emphasize it because that's just how the game is. Things aren't always going to be perfect. But uh, I know the, the guys who bounce back, they bounce back pretty well. That's kind of what we've done as a school. Sometimes when we lose games, we always bounce back. So I think they'll, they'll be good this week. Mm-hmm. Now, I know NFL locker rooms, they – the talk back and forth between, uh, especially when there's rivalry weeks, is usually pretty good. Uh, what what bets did you and Javon have with Savon and Miles and Josiah? So I we see the thing is we didn't even bet him because I was like I'm not gonna bet y'all because I I had said we don't lose at home so I was like I'm not gonna take mm-hmm. I'm not gonna bet nothing I said I'm gonna just let y'all have the the feeling of knowing that y'all lost and I told y'all but then <laughs> you know we lost so we we had to hear earful from them but we're all right we still I still feel like we're a better team better school. All of that, they wish we they could be ducks. That's what I tell them. <laughs> See, guys, again, fans don't always necessarily know, especially this part of the country. Look, they got the Seahawks up the road or the Niners and everything in the Bay Area, but you don't know if you don't follow it as much with the NFL. Yeah, it still carries over a lot, um, and even over. in 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 the team, it still is something where yes, these guys really do chirp at each other quite a bit. We had a full fledged argument about it literally right after the game that Sunday. We had a full fledged argument about it because I was like. Y'all aren't good. I don't care. Y'all aren't good. <laughs> so we had a full argument about it. I think their quarterback was. I think watching this. I like watching this quarterback. Somebody told me he reminded of Teddy Bridgewater, and I could see the comparison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I thought sure. he, the the kid can play. So no doubt. Uh, I was going to say yeah. Some of those throws from from one hash to the other out are just that. When you yeah. talk about NFL throws, explain for fans because of the difference, especially now you get to appreciate it because in the NFL that it's narrower. You don't have boundary and field the same way because the, the, the hashes are, are more narrow. 
But in the collegiate game, you were the field safety. You were the nickel. Right. You were that guy who had to cover that ground. When a quarterback is throwing from one hash to the other outside line, how low probability is that supposed to be? And that's where you made a lot of your hay. That's where a lot of your interceptions came was when people wanted to do something really risky and stupid. Um, and you made them pay. Uh, and in the NFL, it's a different game where it's, it's now uh, uh, hash marks. But just how good were some of those throws that Penix made? Because, yeah, guys like you are, are back there to, to lurk around and take it away from them. Um, I mean, it's, it's crazy when you see people make those throws, like those are throws that translate because those throws are made every single day in practice, every single day in games in the NFL. And just the fact that seeing like somebody like Tua who makes those throws a lot with the type of offense we run, it really seeing Herb do it, Herb doing it in college and seeing it translate Mm -hmm. is another like point of emphasis where you're just like, wow, these guys are making throws. So when we say like, he's an NFL quarterback. It's like, okay, but can he make these type of throws? And like, I have a group chat. We have a group chat. It's called pick your poison, different guys in there. You may have seen them on Twitter. And we're like, we always say you got to make the layups, like certain throws, like the, the out route to the field at this point, uh, to the other hash, that is, that's a layup. You got to be a layup in the NFL because you can't make that throw. Most likely you're not going to be able to last in this league. And a lot of guys can make that throw. Even the thing is like, there's starting quarterbacks in the league and even the backups are still, a good, really good quarterback who can go play somewhere right now. Like those guys are still in the the top one percent. So you just gotta keep the perspective of these guys are are really good and like arm talent is a big deal, especially now with the league and how people are throwing the ball a lot. Arm talent is a very big deal when you think of you know the draft and the NFL and stuff. Your team has some of the fastest players at the skill positions in the league. And, and at the college level, we'd ask you guys, oh, who's the fastest on the team? And everybody would say themselves and everybody. You have between Tyreek, Jalen, Xavier, Iggy, yourself, Javon. You have guys who are burners, who are all burners at the college level, who are punt returners and one of the best punt returners in the country in college football. Who is actually the fastest member of the Dolphins? Because there's got to be a half a dozen guys who could all put up just bonkers times. There's two. It's it's Tyreek and Jalen Waddle. Those are the two fastest. There's no argument of it. Raheem is up there too. I'll, mm-hmm. Raheem is definitely in that in that mix. But it's just different. Like when Tyreek and Jay, like as a defense uh, going against them in practice, it's just different when these two guys are vertical. There's so many things you can do off of it because you may want to play soft as a defense because we can run the ball and we have a good old line and everything and we're running the ball efficiently. And then you play you play tight and these guys can take the top off. So it's mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. But no, Tyreek, even when I first saw Tyreek, you see it on TV, but when you see it in person, it's like, whoa. And then he he has the ability to get out of breaks. And it's like it's it's almost scary because he runs that fast and then takes very minimal steps and gets out of a break and then catches it and is able to still burst back to 120 miles per hour and run all the way across the field. It's just ridiculous. And you you just appreciate it. And you're, you're always saying, I'm glad he's on our team. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying. We say it all the time. Yeah. Jalen, we say, we're glad we're glad they're on our team. For sure. Yeah, because that's it, – it's, it's tough enough to cover it in practice. Uh, to have to do it when the lights are on uh, and there's uh, 60, 70, 80,000 people in the building is uh, – yeah, I, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Not not a whole lot of fun, um, not at all. What is what's the difference at this level, uh, Verone, in terms of when I wouldn't say just the coaching, but more so 
the relationship from player to coach because at the collegiate level, it's probably going to start to change a little bit now. Um, you caught a little bit of the tail end of it with NIL, and you got you got some of it. Um, you were on my radio show with uh, that was sponsored, so yeah, you got a little bit of it. Um, but at the same time, it's still pretty paternalistic because guys are coming in at 16 or 17 years old because they don't know where to go and what to do and what to wear and what travel looks like and all those things. And there's you know, it's a lot more regimented day, even when you're a young adult versus in the NFL. Nobody's holding your hand. <laughs> you got agents, you got managers, you got social media managers. You guys can do whatever. Again, you're in a major city. And I don't think McDaniel's calling you up worrying about, you know, any which thing on a given Tuesday, uh, other than if you're at practice. So what is the difference in terms of player coach relationship? Because I would imagine that's got to be one of the biggest differences from college to the NFL as well. And see, I, I can't speak for like every organization, but like here sure. in Miami, we have a very open dialogue type of relationship like if there's a question or a concern or we feel like something we could do something better than what they have we have that freedom to do that and I think our like our relationship down here you can talk to your coach about whatever it really is and I, I don't think that's normal but like for me especially like my DB coach both well there, we have three DB coaches between Pastor Tain, Sam mm-hmm. Madison and, and Steve Gregory all three guys former players played in this mm-hmm. league for a long time and so you can, they can relate. Like Steve was a, was an undrafted free agent. And so he's, he's somebody who I've been able to talk to and pick his brain and, and see tape of him doing certain things as an undrafted free agent who played in the league for 10 years. So mm-hmm. things like that, you have guys like Sam Madison and Pastor Tain who played in Miami, did it at a very high level, all pro pro bowlers, plenty of interceptions, made a lot of plays, picking their brain and, and how they carried themselves as pros. And then just, around you like you you can't just use your coaches but like you're in a place where it's not like you know a freshman and a senior like there's guys like who've been in this league for 12 years 10 years eight years they're going on year nine who've done it all seen it all and you you ask those questions so it's it's a very open environment here very it's I don't think that's normal but you can really talk like it's funny because when we got Bradley Chubb he's my locker neighbor Mm-hmm. So he's somebody I can talk to. Of course, I have Javon, so it's always been a little bit, sure. quote unquote, easier for me because he's in his second year. But Xavier Howard, somebody who's talked to me, helped me out. Um, Byron Jones, uh, Elandon Roberts, just it's a very, very cool dynamic that we have down here because you really can learn a lot from veterans. And as a rookie, you do see things that are different. Like even we were in the Detroit game and some things happened. I mean, you just haven't seen it before in a real game. It's different when, you know, you're on the sideline watching an NFL game and then when you're actually playing in it, it's it's different. And so that being able to talk to your coach about those things and, and have those questions answered and, you know, say what's on your mind without being crucified for it, I might say is, is definitely cool. And just understanding, you know, yeah, I, just, I forgot what I was going to say. But, yeah, that's that's our dynamic down here. So mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I would imagine, yeah, you – those coaches, I'm guessing, are guys that they're not super old. So I'm guessing you probably were quite familiar with their careers and probably watched them growing up, quite frankly, because they're not guys that are out of the league that long. Exactly. And so that's that's helped us out a lot. Definitely. I think it's definitely helped us. Last thing on the NFL level, uh, Verone, what game are you looking forward to most uh, the second half after your bye week? Are you looking forward to the matchup with Herb? Are you looking forward to the matchup with Allen because that's a division game for you guys with Rodgers because who knows if you're going to get a chance to play Aaron again? Um, what Which one? I would imagine Herb has to hold a certain level uh, some kind of way, uh, but at the same time, you know those others again. You're playing. You're playing great quarterbacks every week. I'm not. I'm not looking past anybody, but those three yeah. in particular seem to stand out, and they're in sequence. Um, 
of course, I mean, honestly, it's crazy because I looked at the second half of the schedule and I was like, wow, this is this is the NFL. Because, like, mm-hmm. we play Houston. Like, we play Houston. Houston, they just play hard. Like, it's a, a tough opponent. And, like, that's why, like, people's records sometimes doesn't matter because – Detroit just won back-to-back games. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, every team plays hard. It's it's truly hard to win. And then just, just the last stretch of our schedule is honestly crazy. Like, from the moment we get back all the way through, I looked at our schedule and I think it's one of the hardest schedules probably – in the NFL to go from Houston because, you know, that's a game where they get out of the bye week. They think you got to sleep on them. You can't sleep mm-hmm. on them at all. And then, like, we go into that stretch of San Fran, the Chargers, Buffalo, Patriots, Jets, Green Bay. I was like, oh, man, welcome to the NFL. I was like, all right, we got Josh Allen, Aaron Rodgers, Herbert, Garoppolo, and all the playmakers they have. I'm like, it's, it's going to be it's gonna be a, a good half of the second season. And, Good thing is we're going into the bye week with some 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 steam, and we just want to keep building on that. So I think it's good, but it's definitely a definitely a tough schedule. And that uh, the East Coast, the West Coast trip, and you got to make back to back. You got to go to the Bay Area and LA uh, in back to back weeks. Uh, and uh, th- yeah, it's usually the West Coast teams that have the harder time for the East because of the time lost. But still, those three thousand mile trips are uh, unforgiving. Uh, no matter what, how old, how young, how much money, it don't matter. Uh, those, <laughs> there's a reason why there's stats kept track, uh, for the East to West Coast trips back and forth because they're vicious and you got them back to back weeks. That's, that's really hard. I mean, that just is. That's yeah. really difficult. Um, that's a lot of time on a plane, uh, <laughs> between back and forth. Um, to, to this week for all, uh, you're coming back, uh, obviously for the Utah game. Are you going to be, uh, uh, Seeing anybody talking to, talking to the team or anything like that before uh, before the game on Saturday? We'd be popping in on practice or anything like that on Thursday, or or just uh, uh, on the sideline on Saturday. I mean, I don't I don't know. Of course, I've I've start, I've reached out to tell them I'm I'm, mm. I'm coming back or whatever. So I mean, if they want me to talk to the team, I gladly will. I know those are still my guys. Like I still I talk to them. We had a big FaceTime call like last week. So mm-hmm. if I need to, I mean, I, I'm always up for some words of inspiration. But um, no, I just I'm just gonna be excited to be back. Um, just want to support and just you know show Coach Landing players. I'm an alum. I love my school. I just want to support. I don't want to be in the way of anybody. You know, like let people do their jobs and everything. But if I'm asked to, I, I can. <laughs> I'll sure accept it and do whatever. So mm-hmm. definitely pop in and, and you know see Kenny and strength staff, all of that. So how much does this this game mean to you as a, as a former player? But because this is one of those games. This was the game at Salt Lake City where you got dinged. This is the game where, you know, Coach 30 had a little bit of fun with you because of it. This is a game that, you know, obviously for those, everybody else who's still on the team uh, remembers what the outcomes are. Um, and for those who are super old, uh, like Forsyth and Walk and Cam and Popo and those guys, they remember 2018 as well. So how much does this game in this series uh, still carry quite a bit to you? Um, it carries quite a bit. For one, because of the way that we lost last year twice, uh, I still will forever have a, a bad feeling about that. And, you know, I can't get it back, but I definitely still have some feelings for that. But then also because Eric Rowe, our teammate, mm-hmm. was a Utah youth. So we've been talking about this since since the day I got here. So we've been waiting on this moment. So it's, it's somebody's either going to come back into the facility with a Utah outfit on, me and Vonnie have to wear a Utah outfit, or he's going to be ducked out. And I think he's going to be ducked out. So I'm – that's also why this game holds a lot of weight. And I think what this probably will be the game that determines who goes to the Pac-12 championship most likely. It will carry a humongous amount of weight, yes. Uh, it, it, it very well – Because I, I know there's whatever, but, yeah, it's I know it's one of those big games. So that's why, you know, last week happened, but now it's time to bounce back, 
go ahead and, and take it out on Utah. So, mm-hmm. how much does uh, uh, to see if any like championship game, especially if they make it, this is definitely a chance uh, getting through this week that USC could be on the other end of it. And a lot of people were looking forward to that, not just because of the obvious, but in this case, in this season, because of Travis and and seeing him go down on Friday. Um, what did that? What did seeing that and learning that um, mean to you? Because again, you, you two were probably you two and AB were probably the three most focal point guys on that roster last season. Um, definitely, uh, um, I definitely felt some type of way about it. Um, somebody, I wasn't even watching the game; I was watching. Somebody else, I think I was watching like Cincinnati play, I think is what I was watching. Somebody had texted me and it was like, Travis just got hurt. So, I, you know, I'm thinking it's whatever. It may just be a mm-hmm. tweak. And they're like, no, I was kind of serious. So I went and then like, I guess I saw them all in the field and stuff. So I knew it wasn't good. And I just, you know, it's a guy that, that truly just loves football. And we've talked a lot. He's somebody I still talk to to this day. It's like a brother to me. So it's it's definitely tough. And I know – if anybody can overcome it and, and get, come back from it stronger, it's Travis. Um, but definitely sad to see you know him go out like that, just because I know how much he cares and how much he loves to play football and how much he loves to win. And so that game would would have definitely been cool to see, you know. But um, yeah, it's just one of those things. That's football for you. This is the final uh, home game of the season, so it's Senior Day, and again, a lot of guys who you came in with, guys who were there even before you, because of the the wonkiness and the wackiness of uh, college football the last couple of years with extra eligibility. You never got a senior day ceremony moment because you chose to go. Uh, so this really could have, would have, should have been in a way, I guess, theoretically, uh, your senior day. Um, what is your best memory from Otson? Um, and again, I remember that in 20, it was half a season and there was nobody there. But what is your favorite memory from Otson and what will it be like to see uh, many of the guys, like I say, some of the guys you came in with uh, going out and having their moment um, on Saturday? My favorite memory Oh man, 2019. Some of those just those late those late nail biter games that we had in 2019. But uh, probably Oregon State from last year. The reason I say it because like I felt like that was a true rivalry game. Like it was it was up and down, back and forth, um, and just of course there was the the little scuffles and altercations at the end. It was just it felt like a rivalry game, and you know we came out of it. And guys are like, bro, I had fun. And so that's that's probably it. But just like shout, you can never replace shout. I never really did the whole dancing during shout because it's like we're about to go into the fourth quarter. And I don't – yeah, I was never just the person. But, I like, it's always just the atmosphere. That's the biggest thing. Every time you watch Oregon on TV, you see the stands full. Like, I'm like, that's awesome for you. And people don't get it that never been. Mm-hmm. And it's just hard to just pinpoint one moment. But, like, the Washington State win – 2019 is definitely probably one up there. Oregon State 2021, uh, those are probably two that really stand out to me the most. And then, of course, I felt like in the Colorado game, my game where I felt like I broke out or whatever you want to call it, those are probably like three right there. But Austin is just one of one. I still think it's the best place in college football. Um, it's funny when you see the different reporters and analysts all go and they're like, this place is amazing. And it's like, this is why I chose that school. And you don't get it unless you've been there before. Yeah, and it's not like this is something that was new either. So, uh, yes, seeing at the UCLA week, the sheer number of national people who came out and were, like, blown away. And I'm like, you know, they called it the Otzen Zoo for the last, like, 20 years, right? I mean, this is not – this is this has been a thing for a while. This is not a new. This didn't suddenly happen. (laughs) It's been been a pretty tough place to play for for some time. 
Um, last couple of things, Ro, because you bring up the Oregon State, and I'd be remiss if I didn't. But we talked about this last year, and it's like there's still some folks in Corvallis who just want to um, oh, never yeah. bury this hatchet. Um, never. But explain for folks, you and Tristan talked after there is no animus. You had no intent. You've addressed this, but like I say, there are some folks who still have you like on the dartboard. Like you are like public enemy number one to some people over there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've like addressed it. I addressed it. I kind of just did it. Like I addressed it. There was no ill intention there. There was no like it was just guys playing football. Something happened that was like, oh man, I didn't, I didn't even know that happened until you know whatever happens, and it's just like. That was never my intent. I had talked to Tristan about it. Me and him were good. He knew there was no ill intent or anything like that. And he's he was like, it wasn't anything like that. And so you just you just got to move on, honestly. That's what I do. If I'm public enemy number one in Corvallis, I guess that <laughs> is what it is. I'm a duck forever. So they would have not liked me anyways just for making plays. But it it is what it is. I mean, that's, that's college football for you. Some people are always going to have something to say. And you just keep moving about your day, honestly. That's what I do. What does uh what does coming back what will coming back this weekend and with Javon no less you know not just come back in general but come back what will this uh what do you think this weekend will mean to you just you know having this opportunity um in a bye week in a big game and it happens to be Utah you know you're not coming back in a, in a bye week where it's the FCS opponent uh, or anything like that you're coming back and it's uh it's something that still carries a lot of weight it means something to you personally it means something to the team it, you know it's big stakes still um what what does coming back mean um it means a lot just because. Like, I felt like that place helped me grow up. That's like, you know, you spend four years there with a lot of coaching changes, COVID happens, lead, different leaders leave, people, Justin Herbert leaves, diff, a whole bunch of stuff has happened just in my time there. But then just, you know, I feel like I left my mark and between myself and, you know, Javon did his thing and left early. And that was the goal. Like, we've gotten to where we wanted to go and we're still climbing to reach new heights, but coming back and paying like homage to a place where we, we grew, we, we became what we wanted to become, had some of our most fond memories, made some of our best friends. And then just for myself, you know, being somebody who, you know, I left my mark from off the field and on the field, trying to, to uphold a, a standard and show guys the way and the way I approach my every day off the field, on the field, preparation, treatment, all of that. And then, I mean, third finalist, consensus all-american there's only 10 i think in mm -hmm. oregon history so like all of that just coming back it'll be kind of overwhelming a little bit just because i love my school so much but i'm excited for it again folks he is the general Roman mckinley the third follow him on twitter as always at uh, v mckinley three um I'm, i believe you can still get the v3 sandwich at uh, high on the hog barbecue where i'm sure he'll be swinging by uh here I'll in Eugene Street Saturday. Market. There you go. Yeah, see, there you go. Uh and and the folks there still do uh, uh plenty of work with uh with Oregon players, but uh Verone was the first. Uh so uh again, you can certainly grab a sandwich there, run into him there on Saturday before the game. You have all day. The game's until 7 30. It's a it's a Pac 12 after dark special. So uh appreciate it as always, Verone. Again, obviously I hope to see you on Saturday and obviously the best of luck the rest of the way. Um awesome start so far to the NFL. I was I was Obviously, I was, on one hand, I, I would love to have seen you drafted. On the other hand, I knew that there was no doubt that you were going to end up in an awesome spot, and that you ended up in a spot where you did. I went, "That's that's as as good as that's pretty much perfect." I think I texted your dad. I was like, "That is literally perfect." <laughs> I was like, "That is ideal," and, so, and clearly, it's proven that way. It's awesome for you. I'm happy for you, and uh, thanks again for uh, for joining us, man. No doubt, I appreciate it.